You are listening to Breaking the Waves, conversations about the Dutch pandemic. Uh, my name is Matt Cornell, and this is a English language podcast that takes a critical look at Dutch coronavirus policy. Uh, today, uh, my guest is Marino van Zelst. Marino van Zelst is currently a final year PhD candidate at the Department of Organization Studies at Tilburg University. His research interests concern how decision makers evaluate and act upon performance signals. Marino is actively involved in the professional community. He participates in knowledge exchange sessions with stakeholders and is a member of the expert panel for the COVID-19 dashboard and performance indicators for the Dutch Department of Health. Moreover, Marino is a member of the COVID-19 Red Team in the Netherlands, which provides unsolicited advice to the cabinet and parliament on coronavirus policy from a multidisciplinary behavioral perspective. Our conversation was recorded on June 24th of 2021. So uh, Marino, thank you very much for joining me today on Breaking the Waves. Uh, and I just thought uh, to get started for uh, listeners who may not be familiar with what it is that you do, could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the red team and what you do uh, for the red team? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for the invitation. Obviously, that's that's the first thing to mention. Um, so how this all got started is I started analyzing excess mortality data um, during the first wave. So that's April and May 2020. Um, and then posting these analyses on uh, on Twitter. And then in June, I think the, the RIVM, the National Public Health Institute, announced that they would no longer do daily updates um, on the website and on social media. Um, but they announced they would publish the open data um, on some website. Um, you know, I'm pretty uh, okay with programming, and I just wanted to know myself. Um, so I started programming in such a way that I could automatically extract the numbers every day uh, with the open data and also started publishing it on Twitter. And apparently a lot of people um, wanted to know uh, those numbers daily. Um, so then I started together with uh, Edwin Veldhuizen, uh, who is also in the red team publishing the numbers. And I focused more on the national uh, statistics and Edwin uh, focused on the more municipal or regional um, statistics. And we've been doing that since basically the 1st of July, 2020. So in, um, well, basically when this is posted, um, we'll do this for a year, uh, um, every day. Um, and then at some point we actually found some mistakes um, in the numbers. So the uh, official numbers um, did not show the corrections that were taking place. So sometimes um, double entries ended up in the data, for example, um, and we figured out a way to extract those. Um, that led to me ending up in a newspaper with like a short article on these um, uh, data errors. Um, and apparently that caught the attention of uh, my now colleagues in the red team. Um, so then I got invited by Amrish um, and, and the rest of the then original members of the red team to join um, because they were looking for somebody who was thinking more strategy-like and social science-like and who's good with numbers. Um, and that's kind of my profile, I would say. Um, so within the red team, um, my, the, the unofficial name is uh, uh, chief of numbers. Um, so okay. I basically work with a lot of other people who also work with the data numbers. Um, we also have some people who estimate models um, similar to uh, the NVM models, for example. Um, and together we try to make sense epidemiologically speaking of what is happening, what is likely to happen. And using that, I informed the rest of the red team, like what is the current situation? What are our 
um, forecasts, um, et cetera, and that feeds into the discussion um, that we have. Yeah. Right, and I have to say, as someone who was reading those uh, up, those daily updates from the RAVM religiously uh, during the first wave, uh, your Twitter feed has been invaluable. Of course, I kind of don't decide how I'm feeling about stepping outside my door until it's been 3.15 and I've <laughs> refreshed Twitter and uh, learned the good or the bad news. Um, could we talk a little bit about some of the things that you raised? So you said you first got started with this in crunching some numbers on excess mortality. What did you find? So basically in the, in the beginning, of course, in the first wave, um, we saw really unprecedented increases in infection, hospitalizations, and also deaths. Um, because um, at some point, of course, we took measures, but, but like every other country, it took some time um, to do that. Um, and that led to um, a lot of deaths um, in the first wave. So I think the total number between basically beginning of March and end of June ends up with 10,000 people um, dying of COVID. Um, so we basically saw similar trends that we saw in other countries first couple of weeks when the epidemic really exponentially um, increased, uh, the number of deaths also exponentially increased. Then after the lockdown um, effects started kicking in, that also decreased really fast um, in the first wave, especially. Yeah. And now has uh, the official COVID death count been closer to the excess death count in the sense that uh, now everyone presumably gets tested before if they end up dying. Uh, have you and, seen that change? And no, because the problem is not that um, people are not tested for the dead count. So, um, of course, we test more, so that helps. The biggest problem is that there is no mandatory notification of um, infectious disease deaths to um, the NAVM. So uh, hospitals, for example, or nursing homes, um, are not obligated to um, notify the uh, public health institute that somebody died of COVID. Um, and uh, we see that the underestimation has stayed really stable um, basically up until February, um, because we have uh, numbers from the Central Bureau of Statistics, um, and they use the death certificates um, in combination with positive tests from um, uh, the GGD, so the, the local public health uh, authorities, um, and they counted up until February 2021, and then they counted 27,500, um, while the NAVM up until then counted 16,000, um, doing this from the top of my mind. Um, but that factor has basically been very stable. So, so the idea, if people want to do a simple count, is, is multiply the official NAVM number by 1.7, and you'll get very close to the current real number of deaths. And do you know how that compares to other countries, especially countries that are were assumed to have done very badly uh, uh, or countries that seem to have done well? Yeah. Um, so, for example, um, Belgium uh, does not underestimate deaths um, because they're pretty liberal in the official count. But they overcounted, um, right? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so so I think they're pretty close or a bit overcounting um, because they were pretty liberal in the official numbers. Yeah. Um, while the RIVM um, has, and that makes sense to me, a stricter policy of we need a positive test um, and then we need to be notified, of course. While in Belgium, um, especially in the beginning, they also counted um, people with um, uh, COVID-like symptoms. So probably it's COVID. Um, and that's a reasonable assumption, um, of course. Um, so... Um, if you want to make a comparison between, for example, European countries um, yeah. in terms of excess um, deaths, 
first. Um, basically, that's impossible um, because there are so many factors contributing to this. That the official dead counts are just really hard to trace. But um, if um, you ignore all that, um, but I just have to say it because um, uh, science and nuance are important. Um, if you ignore all that, there are countries that have done worse, um, such as the UK, for example, um, and there are countries that have done way better, um, such as the Scandinavian countries, with the exception of Sweden, of course. Right. Um, and if I understand correctly, excess deaths uh, as a measure uh, takes into account death, not necessarily deaths related to COVID, but deaths that would have been preventable if there hadn't been a strain on the healthcare system, right? I mean, it's it's it, it estimates how many more deaths than were expected for that period, right? So uh, those people who were denied care or had their, their operations delayed would figure into that number. Um, uh, yes, um, although that's really hard to disentangle, of course. Right. Um, so um, there's two ways basically of doing this. The first one is indeed estimating excess deaths based on how many deaths would we expect if this would be a year without COVID, basically. Um, and that you calculate based on the averages of the past few years, uh, you take into account seasonal trends, um, but also life expectancy uh, cohorts. So we're getting more um, older people um, in this population, for example. And yeah. if you mix all that together, then you get an idea of how many deaths were to be expected. And then you compare that to the actual amount of deaths. Of course, that's very crude. Um, because that's just comparing two numbers and that doesn't give you a, a proper clue uh, already about um, what is driving um, those excess deaths. And of course, in the first wave, it's pretty clear um, there were no basically no other reasons um, than COVID uh, that could have caused those um, deaths. Um, but if we look at, for example, um, the second wave in January and February, and that's in a period that we normally see a lot of flu deaths, for example. Right. So then the expected number is a bit higher um, than that was, for example, in April in 2020. So then the excess deaths um, are um, an undercount, actually, because the models usually already take into account flu deaths, but those didn't happen this year. Um, right. Well, or at least a very minimal, um, because it's so much easier to crush uh, flu than, than COVID um, with the measures that we use. Even even um, the limited measures that we had compared to other countries. I mean, uh, I, I was surprised. Yeah. I was surprised by that myself because uh, I was nervous that I didn't get a flu shot this season. And someone told me, look, if you're taking precautions against COVID, you're not going to get the flu. And they were right. Uh, in fact, I mean, the, the reproduction so number did. of the reproduction number of flu is so much lower than COVID. So, yeah. so with the measures we've used the past year, yeah. it was extremely easy to crush um, um, the flu. Um, Which definitely. seems to suggest that maybe we could make a minimal effort each flu season to prevent those deaths, right? That 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 yeah. is that is one lesson I think we need to learn from from this pandemic. Okay. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so let me ask you. You said that you you look at a number of a, a, a bunch of different numbers. What numbers do you report daily? or what kinds of numbers? Uh, better question would be, which numbers do we not record? Okay. Um, because, okay. because we try to trace um, basically everything there is currently in open data or we, we from the AVM or we take it from other um, places. Um, so usually we trace um, the number of positive tests, uh, hospital intakes, ICU intakes, deaths, of course. Um, we split it up for um statistics in nursing homes because um, they get published separately 
um, people older than 70 plus uh, still um, living at home, for example, but also uh, the variant uh, data, right? So the um, RIVM publishes the sequencing data. We use those four models of estimating prevalence um, of variants, for example, so the alpha or the delta now. Um, yeah, basically, if, if there is open data about it, we'll parse it and we'll publish it. Um, mo mobility data um, is one thing we've been keeping track of um, in since the second wave. Um, so how many people um, are using um, their car, how many people are driving to school, work, um, uh, or um, time off, for example. Um, and at some point, we started parsing um, uh, uh, traffic intensity so you can trace the amount of cars that drive on uh, um, highways each day um, and all of that is an indicator of course of our behavior and whether we are um, following the measures as intended yeah right like mobility data yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and what can you tell us uh, uh what do the numbers say now what is the current picture of the dutch pandemic the current picture is pretty good i would say um i'm currently optimistic about what is happening. Um, obviously, um, I would always like it to go down faster. Um, I'm uh, ambitious, I would say, like that. Um, but currently, it's going very well. Uh, we have uh, about 400 people in the hospital left. Um, that's less than a quarter of what it was compared um, to, the, to the peak of the waves, of course, um, or even one-sixth of the last uh, um, peak. Um, deaths are down to single digits, have been for weeks now, um, mostly due to vaccinations, of course. Um, and the positive tests are also going down below 1,000 a day. Um, so all of that is um, it's looking well, yeah. Do you, I've noticed the last few days that the positive cases seem to be hovering around six or 700. Do you think that this is gonna stabilize there or, or that it's actually gonna drop further? Tricky. Um, yeah. for, forecasting is, is really difficult because um, it used to be pretty easy, actually. Um, but um, by now, I would say it's getting more difficult because, because vaccinations are in play. Um, yeah. And that just makes it more difficult. Of course, holidays starting now. Um, so people are going are gonna to go on, on holidays. Um, and football. So and, and football. Um, yeah. So the question, of course, is whether those couple of big events in combination with the testing policies um, that we have in place, um, in combination with the fact that there are way less infectious people um, than during the peaks, right? So um, we remember from last summer, there was this huge protest in Amsterdam, um, the Black Lives Matter protest, um, tens of, ten of 10,000 people together wearing masks, being outside. Um, and basically nothing happened because um, there already were so few infections um, that if you wear masks and you stay outside and there are only a couple of tens or hundreds of infections a day, then even such big events will not cause problems. Um, currently, that's a bit different. Um, I think the, the ep epidemic pressure is a bit higher than then. Um, but in combination with the testing, I'm not sure it's actually going to lead to huge explosions um, currently. Okay, so I, I want to follow up on two things there. The first is, uh, right now, the public can easily access uh, self-tests, rapid, uh, rapid tests, rapid antigen tests. Uh, these are freely available in grocery stores, drug stores. How do we know uh, what percentage of positive tests are actually never recorded because they're just happening at home? 
or how many are missed because people don't know how to use those tests? Do we have um, any idea? No, um, we don't. Uh, what we do have is the uh, sporadic um, information we get through OMT um, advices, because they tend to report on how many um, uh, tests at the GGD, so that's the, the official uh, testing streets, of course, are confirmation tests of positive self-tests. Um, so they tend to report that, but those are once every two weeks. Um, and then they report on uh, the amount, these, this amount of tests at the GGD was a confirmation test based on a, a positive self-test, for example. Basically, that's it. Um, so we do not have a proper clue of how many people self-test. Um, before the, the big testing business got going with all the testing streets for the uh, events, for example, we had some proxy because there were a couple of suppliers in the Netherlands of these self-tests. So when they mentioned I'm getting increases um, in sales, then we knew people are testing more. Um, but now there's just so many that, that based on these self-tests, we have no clue. Um, there is a nuance, of course. We, we still know that a lot of people will go to the GGD um, test streets um, and the uh, percent positive there by now has reached 4%. Um, that's pretty low compared to the, at some point, even 20% we were hitting. Um, and below 5%, the WHO also mentioned um, um, that you have a pretty okay view of the amount of infections um, that are going on. So um, no, we don't know how many people are doing self-tests. But at the same time, I would say we have a reasonable view of the number of infections um, currently okay. taking place. The other thing I want to ask you about, which you briefly mentioned, was Delta. Because as I understand it, uh, places that are much further along in vaccinating their populace, like Israel, uh, the UK, um, parts of the United States, uh, are starting to see increases in uh, cases and also in hospitalizations. So uh, given that the Netherlands has actually gone in the opposite direction and has lifted a bunch of measures, including really basic things like masking, uh, working from home, why are you so optimistic? Uh, as I understand it, the Delta variant uh, it could have an R reproduction number of seven, uh, which would put it at twice as contagious as wild type. Um, so you know, what's the other side of this picture? What's the other forecast <laughs> or do um, you the forecast? Well, I, I'm optimistic for the upcoming weeks. Um, I'm okay. not optimistic for the upcoming months. Um, and that is, that is especially due to, to the Delta um, variant. Um, indeed, the current estimate is that um, if this variant would be the first wild type variant, no immunity, no measures, then it would have an R0 of six or seven. Um, that's about two and a half times higher than the, than the wild type um, variant. Yeah. Um, and um, indeed, we're seeing in countries such as the UK, Israel, um, and I think especially the latter um, is the most problematic um, indication that, that this variant is um, not a variant anybody wants in their country. Um, the difference between the UK and um, Israel is that the UK has been using um, uh, vector vaccines, as such yeah. as AstraZeneca, a lot. Um, we know that those perform well for uh, serious disease, so hospitalization and death. Yeah. Um, but the current estimate is that that protection is 60% against infection. Um, the mRNA vaccines provide around 90%, and Israel basically has used Pfizer, um, which is right. currently, based on the current data, I think the best vaccine we have. 
Um, and even in Israel, we see cases going up. Um, right, and they're yeah. putting masks on school children again, something that has almost never happened in the Netherlands. So, True. Yeah. And, and I think what we can um, conclude is that if you have an R0 of seven, um, then you can calculate a rough estimate of how many people you need immunized um, before the pandemic is really, really over due to um, um, immunization. Um, and the idea is there is that we um, um, take one minus one divided by R0. So you get one minus um, um, uh, 0.14. So you need about 85% of your people, um, uh, of your population immunized. Um, the extra problem there is that that works under the assumptions that vaccines are perfect. So they protect 100% against um, infection, which I also do not. So the current idea is that you need about 90% um, of your of your population um, um, uh, vaccinated before you can get the pandemic fully under control purely with vaccination and immunization. And mm -hmm. um, I think 90% is, is virtually impossible because not everybody wants to be vaccinated. Um, there's a large group of people, uh, um, 18 minus, that were not vaccinating um, currently. Um, so with that variant in play, um, and the way we've been handling this pandemic, and I'm not very optimistic for the next couple of months. Okay, so your your forecast is a is a summer forecast. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, well, that, that that is consistent with 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 what RIVM has said too, uh, that they do not expect in the short term an increase in hospitalizations, because uh, it sounds like the population that this is most going to spread in is younger people who are less likely to end up in the hospital at least initially. Uh, with this, uh, with this variant. Um, so, okay, uh, I know you're, you're not an epidemiologist uh, uh, or virologist. However, mathematically, uh, you're, you're saying that in order to uh, avoid uh, more crisis in healthcare, you need something like 85% of the population vaccinated. Does that mean that the Netherlands is gonna have to reconsider uh, the sort of reluctance to vaccinate children? Um, there's many ways to control a pandemic um, and vaccination is just one of them. Um, right. And I always think of this as the as the Swiss cheese model. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm sure your listeners are, are familiar um, with it, but to shortly explain, um, the idea is that that all measures are, are slices of Swiss cheese um, and they have holes in them. So um, one slice by itself will never be effective. But if you just stack a lot of slices um, behind each other, the virus will have difficulty getting through the entire bank of, of slices um, because each hole is covered by another um, slice. So um, yes, vaccinations are a great tool. Um, but uh, from the start, we've been saying also in the red team, vaccinations are not the only way out. Um, so there's multiple things we can do, um, and especially with variants uh, such as Delta, um, we can be pretty sure that vaccination is not um, necessarily the way out. Um, there is a lot of um, discussion in the Netherlands about vaccinating children, and I think the, the discussion is not about the right thing. Um, because it has been mostly about should we vaccinate children um, either for their own uh, protection, um, I think um, both you um, and me could be counted under um, um, that corner um, that we need to protect kids from this virus um, because um, even though kids are less vulnerable, they are still um, in danger of getting um, serious uh, consequences if they contract the virus. 
Um, then there's the people who would say you cannot use children um, to gain uh, herd immunity, for example. Um, but I think Isn't that what we've been doing for the last year and a half? That, that, using that, children to get to herd immunity? That, that would be the conclusion of some, yeah. Okay. Um, but I think what the what is missing here um, um, is is the point that that we need to get the whole world vaccinated um, in, if we want this pandemic to be over. And currently there is a scarcity in vaccines. Um, so do um, the question is in a country such as ours where we have um, the resources to use a whole bunch of other measures um, to control this pandemic, um, should we not submit our vaccines to COVAX, for example? Um, so we can distribute them among countries which do not have the resources to um, stick to these measures. Because remember, um, we can handle lockdowns economically. It's not great. Nobody wants it, including me. But economically, we can handle it. Um, in uh, the global south, um, not working a day is not having food for a day. Um, so their vaccines are a much more effective tool to control the pandemic. So uh, how to distribute vaccines, um, I think, is a discussion worth having and we're not having it um, okay. in this country, I think. Right. Yeah. So, and, and also there are countries that are further behind of vaccinations that haven't had to fear about major outbreaks, of course, places like New Zealand and uh, even South Korea, which, uh, you know, uh, Australia only recently seems to uh, have had any worries and they're still talking about double digits of cases, right? So uh, if, you, if you have a containment policy or even a more aggressive mitigation policy like in Germany, you don't apparently have this same urgency to get children vaccinated because you just don't have a lot of community spread. Uh, yeah, but the, the Netherlands has, has, has basically been at a, at a high risk level for I think all but three months, which would have been last summer, if I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, so it's really been, uh, as someone who's a vulnerable person, it's really been bad weather for like almost the entire pandemic, to use that metaphor. Um, and there's places where that certainly hasn't been. That's a good point about uh, vaccines in other parts of the world. I have a couple of questions about uh, things that you've uh, talked about on Twitter before. So sometimes when you report the data, you say that there's been a storing, uh, some kind of like computer outage or power problem. Can you talk about how often this happens and, and what you think is going on? Um, th this happens, I'm using, I'm trying to look for the correct qualification, um, um, intermitt intermittently, let's use that word. Okay. Um, so sometimes we've had a couple of uh, um, uh, outages in, in a couple of days in a row, actually, sometimes not been there for a month. Um, there's many reasons why um, there's um, issues. First, it's IT, and IT tends to fail sometimes. It just happens. Um, in um, many cases, rebooting your computer solves the trick, um, but that's not the case with epidemiological data, of course. Um, second is there is a couple of layers that the data needs to go through, right? So um, there is the, the people going to the testing street, then there is the actual labs, they need to send it to the GGD, um, the GGD collects it, then sends it to the RIVM, they do the cron jobs um, into the data sets and they get uploaded. Um, sometimes there's manual errors because they happen um, and then the data do not get submitted to the RIVM um, and then the RIVM reports this specific KGD um, has had an error or they do not report anything at all. Um, that also has happened and then we made a big fuss um, out of that um, on Twitter, for example. Um, yeah, um, I think 
stuff just happens um mostly although at some point it gets really annoying um because after 60 months you would expect a a flawless data stream um and to be set up but still we're dealing with 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 um uh, human errors um, and they will continue to happen one of the reasons i ask of course is that um the media seems unusually complicit in promoting whatever the government's policy line is and so sometimes there'll be a, a, a you know an outage a computer problem and the figures will be low and uh you know the nos uh, will report uh you know uh oh only this number of cases today and they won't put the extra information there that there was this uh and uh, i don't want to sound like a conspiracist but it certainly is helpful to have bad data every once in a while especially if there's um some controversy about uh, measures being relaxed too fast or something like that. It, it works both ways, actually. Um, in September, so at the start of the second wave, there was a day when we've had deaths of single digits for, for days, but they were slowly increasing. So like two, two, three, five, seven. And then one day we had 34 out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so people were going crazy. Like, like, is the epidemic rising so fast? Newspapers were, were with headlines like, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but everybody's dying from COVID now. Um, and then I saw, spike. <laughs> yeah, because of the, it was a really yeah. weird spike. And usually when I see weird spikes that triggers, there's a data problem. Um, so we started um, uh, building these little trackers that would take uh, um, a note of when did these deaths actually happen. Yeah. Um, and that specific day, there were uh, 21 deaths from one gege day who started cleaning the archives. Um, and they basically found 21 um, cases of people who had died already um, but did not submit yet to the AVM. So basically, um, uh, these 21 deaths were from April and May or something. Um, these people still died, which is horrible. But in the context of understanding what was happening epidemiologically, um, that data didn't make sense anymore. So when we subtracted those, we got to a number that was realistic. And then I started sending messages to newspapers like, fix your headlines because. Um, uh, you don't have to shout like there's 34 deaths. Um, um, it's going nuts mm. now. I mean, there was a problem. There was a huge problem. Um, but that wrong uh, interpretation of the data, because checking the real details of the data, it happens both ways. Um, but I, I think what the biggest problem is, is that um, we could use some more data journalists. Um, um, in general, um, okay. that tends to help because the ones I speak to, the data journalists, they usually first check these kinds of things before they make headlines. Um, and the rest just reports the data um, as it gets in, of course. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I spoke with a researcher who uh, looks at the, is a historian of science, uh, Chris Maines, a few episodes ago. And they they looked at uh, how the contact tracing data from the Hey Hey Day has been uh, a little bit uh, strange. Uh, and um, it really suggested the need for uh, closer scrutiny of those numbers and and, and what's behind them. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about your own uh, ac- academic background. As I understand it, you're in the final year of your uh, PhD research. Sure. Congratulations! Uh, and you uh, you work at, uh, you research an area called organization studies. What is organization studies, and what are you researching? Um, this is always the trickiest part to explain. Um, so. Uh, summarizing, we study the human side of business. Um, so basically, we're trained as a combination of organizational psychologists and sociologists. And, and at the department that I studied and, and currently work at as a PhD candidate and lecturer, 
Um, we mainly focus on interaction and collaboration between people and organizations. Um, so we try to understand what the drivers are for effective teams, um, for effective inter-organizational collaboration, how to produce um, innovative outcomes um, for organizations, for example. Um, so we have a multi-layered um, group of people that basically study teams, organizations, and collaborations between uh, organizations. We call those networks, of course. Um, that's the big picture. Um, what I do here is I um, uh, focus on a field called the behavioral theory of the firm and behavioral strategy. Um, and there we try to merge insights from um, psychology and sociology um, into uh, strategic management um, uh, views. So strategic management has had this very rational idea of, of people are fully informed when they make decisions. The same goes for organizations. Um, we take all uh, uh, alternative options into account and then we, we choose the one with the best expected value. Obviously, that's, that's totally nonsensical because people do not have the um, computing power to make fully informed or rational decisions. So um, what people do, um, and I'm using this long buildup because it gets back into the pandemic um, um, issues, and um, what people do is we use heuristics to make decisions. So we use shortcuts based on um, our own experience, based on what we observe from others. Um, so that's vicarious learning. Um, we use reference points. So um, I always tell my students when I explain is like, if you always score a seven um, on your exams and then suddenly you score a four, that's a trigger um, to um, think about what went wrong, right? I, I drank too much beer the night for the exam. I didn't study enough. Um, I have a bad teacher. It happens. Um, but if you always score a seven and then you score a 7.3, then usually you do not do anything because that just falls in line with what you um, expected. Um, even though you might have done better. So on this specific course, um, probably you could have gotten a nine if you would have done better. You see a 7.3 and then the trigger is that's what I usually get. So all is fine. Um, so this is how people um, think about performance, um, generally speaking. And we see the same type of behavior for organizations um, and my uh, dissertation and general research is about trying to understand how people form performance targets so where do these targets that we aim for um, as organizations as people um, actually come from and what happens if you fail to achieve um, the set targets um, as an organization so what are uh, the managers of this crisis uh, the outbreak management team uh, Ruta's cabinet what are the heuristics that they're using, as far as you can tell? Um, tricky. Uh, that is from from a distance. That is really tricky. I think what they've been banking on is experience um, in the beginning. Um, so uh, at the beginning, I think we were banking on flu protocols, for example. Um, that changed as soon as we saw the impact. I think in the Netherlands that it escalated so fast that that didn't work anymore. Um, of course. Um, but um, the what the interesting thing about about these heuristics is is that they are insanely hard to uh, battle if if necessary. Um, and one example I, I've given in other um, interviews is that at some point we had the contact tracing system crashed completely because we didn't have enough of them. Um, we understood we needed more, and we started to train um, new contact tracers in April and May. Then the epidemic in the first wave went down fast, um, and then I think. Somewhere mid-May, I was um, calling with a friend and I texted him after our conversation. I was like, I'll make one forecast. That was, I've made many after, but back then I didn't know I was going to do that. 
And I said, my forecast is this, the infection rate will go down in June. And end of June, somebody will announce, will decrease the amount of contact tracers because the epidemic is uh, basically over. We'll go on holidays, we'll import um, infections from abroad. Um, end of July, it will go uh, up again. And then the beginning of August, somebody will show up on TV and, and say, we did not see this coming. Um, and um, he texted me end of July, um, like your prediction was almost perfect. The only difference is there was a person on TV already end of July saying we did not see this coming um, because we didn't have enough contact tracers because we downscaled all of them. And he said, how did you um, predict this? And I was like, this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about heuristics um, because um, we've seen the contact tracing system crash big time in March. Um, biggest pandemic anybody on this planet has been in during their life, basically. Um, and then the, the reasoning in May is it's going down and therefore we can scale down the contact tracers instead of thinking probably it's going to go up again. So we need to maintain the system at this um, a really high level and probably train some more because of a second wave, for example. And this is the type of heuristic. And even if you get this brutal feedback that we got in the first wave, like this system doesn't work this way of decision-making does not work, we still keep on doing that. Um, and that's what we have seen here. Yeah. I, think, I think over time, um, the, the, the effectiveness of, of learning um, is not at the level I would like it to be um, as somebody who, would, who studies decision-making and organizational learning. Yeah. yeah um, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the flu because that's also what I thought of when I thought of what heuristic they might've been applying, but of course, uh, from my, from where I'm sitting, uh, the Netherlands, like many Northern European countries, doesn't have a very aggressive uh, seasonal flu uh, plan compared to, say, uh, U.S. and U.K., where they try to vaccinate up to 70% of the population. So uh, I thought, well, if that's the model you're using, you won't, yeah, you won't necessarily protect uh, enough of the populace uh, with that plan. But um, it, there seems to be another kind of thing we're not talking about here, which is that uh, Ruta did announce in his in his uh, famous speech uh, back back when uh, in March of last year, he did announce that we were going to pursue uh, a controlled spread, uh, which has sometimes been called the herd immunity policy. Do you think that that is uh, the framework that uh, these managers are using? Uh, and uh, you know, is it primarily about? I, ICU capacity and healthcare capacity, or do you think that there's something else going on? I think that's that's one of the biggest questions during this entire pandemic, especially for for the Netherlands. Um, I, based on the decision making that I have seen, and um, there is no other conclusion um, to make that in this pandemic, the main performance indicator that we've been using um, to control the pandemic has been hospitalizations. Um, so um, in case hospitalizations do not go up, then there's no problem in this country. Um, yeah. that, that's a bit, um, um, of course, making it a very um, exaggerated statement, but I think that's pretty accurate. Um, so um, in a theoretical um, universe, alternative universe, if we would have seen 10,000 10, infections a day, but no hospitalizations, then nobody would do something. Um, because because healthcare can handle, 
Um, I mean, that's even one of the official pillars of this policy is protecting the vulnerable, keeping a, a, a good view of the uh, uh, epidemic and making sure that healthcare does not get overloaded. Um, so there is no pillar that says we need to get infections down to um, a low level, for example, that, that is not an official pillar. So um, yes, um, um, the way we've been looking at this pandemic here, at least from the, the politician's view, um, uh, is um, if hospitals do not get overloaded, there is no issue. Um, right, but that only means overloaded in the short term, right? Because of course, now we have 140,000 operations that were delayed or canceled that the at best estimate is two years uh, to catch up with all of those operations. Of course, people that are dealing with life-threatening illnesses may not actually uh, see that treatment. Uh, so it's sort of like what you said about the forecast for right now. Uh, in the short term, uh, it looks like uh, we're not going to have overloaded hospitals, but uh, we're going to pay the bill later, it sounds like. Um, well, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're, we're already paying um, the bill. Currently, there was yeah. an article last week that said that during, I think, the first and second wave, there were at least there were a couple of hundreds of deaths caused because these people did not have access to um, healthcare because there was basically no space. Um, due yeah. to all the COVID patients. So um, yes, in the short, it's it's very much all of the response are very much focused on the short term, um, I believe. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you also um, advised the health department on the, uh, the dashboard. Um, can you talk a little bit about this uh, and, and what, what you do for them and, and how that was put together? Yeah, so um, at some point, Last July, I got an email from the health department saying we need experts for this um, um, data and dashboard panel. I figured I'm an expert because I tweet numbers, apparently. Um, but of course, you're honored and, and you accept the invitation because you get the advice. Um, uh, uh, the, the main department um, um, of health um, during a pandemic, it's, it's an honor um, in, a, in a way. Um, so uh, there was a panel basically of people, of data journalists, um, data experts, people who've been working with Corona data, um, user, user, user experience experts, for example, um, and then basically they uh, build a first version of the dashboard and they were saying like, okay, this is the one we have, what do we need to do to improve it? Um, so we were advising, I think that was July, um, and then we were already in the red team with Bert Slachter, a complexity expert, and Edwin also. Um, like you get, need to get to a regional dashboard, you need to connect um, uh, the indicators such as infections and hospital intakes with explicit measures. So basically they automatically kick in once you reach certain levels um, because that provides clarity to people and people, the one thing people need during a crisis is clarity. Um, so tell me what to do um, and tell me how to do it and I will do these things. Um, so we've been advising that. Um, at some point, there was a regional dashboard and the link between indicators and measures, that basically never happened. Um, and that's when we got the second wave at some point because there was not a lot of action taken. And then we just um, uh, reverted back to national measures, which right. is lockdown. Yeah. There also wasn't, it wasn't just that uh, the signal values uh, triggering measures didn't happen. It's that if I recall correctly, especially in the early days, they simply changed the signal values on the dashboard uh, when, 
when we started exceeding the the, early, the limits that were first uh, set, right? Not, um, that's been the, the discussion that what they did, they, they changed the color scaling. Okay. Um, but the but the official signal values never changed, but that didn't actually matter because they were never used anyhow. Right. Um, right. So so <clears throat> it, it was a coloring thing, but I've been yeah. um, surprised by that part. Um, um, but but the problem was we've never used the signal values um, because at some point when we reached them, we either changed them policy wise. Or we came up with other reasons why um, we shouldn't use them at that point. Right. Um, or like, or, yeah, I mean, I think most of the relaxations were announced when all 25 safety regions were still at the highest risk level. So, uh, you know, uh, what good is it having those values if, uh, if you're not going to make them link somehow meaningfully to a change in policy? Yeah, I mean, at some point, um, we on the dashboard, they use the GGD hospital data, and that suffers yeah. from the same problem as the death data, which is there is no um, obligation to report hospitalizations uh, of infectious okay. diseases. Yeah. So the GGD has a huge undercount of the actual hospital intake. So we look to um, NICE, which is the um, National Intensive Care um, Registration System. Um, and they actually um, um, allow doctors to manually put it in. So that has been a much more accurate number. So then at some point in December or September, we were screaming loudly, like all the signal values have been passed. Um, and then other people, um, I've had discussion with um, uh, Mark Bonte, for example, back then, like September 2020, he was like, I'm looking at the dashboard. That's not true. I'm like, yeah, but the dashboard data is problematic. You have to look at this other data. Um, right. So uh, there were all these types of discussions back then based on the signal values, the data, um, and we've just been screaming, this is an epidemic, there's right. exponential growth, you need to do stuff now, um, regard regardless of signal values. Yeah. And I, I recall there was a day where you, uh, other members of the red team and other independent uh, researchers actually just didn't uh, report any data, uh, where you had a data blackout day. Uh, yeah, we've, a protest. Yeah, yeah. We, we did that twice. Um, so there was the um, uh, December 2020 was that day when Rutte during the press conference literally said the numbers are going up, but we're not going to do anything. Um, and then we just reached the point. So one of our my colleagues um, um, in the data team, so to speak, um, was like, but what is then the use of publishing the numbers, guys, if if even if it's going worse, they're not going to do anything, then yeah. there's no sense. So we had a conversation and we we're like, let's do a protest day to, to um, send a signal, um, which then ended up in the news. So that was, that was pretty funny. And then um, uh, two months ago, the cabinet announced like, we're not going to look at infection numbers again. Hospitalizations is the only thing that matters because of vaccination. Yeah. And then we did um, replaced all the numbers by, by saying not relevant with every number um, there was. Um, yeah, so that was um, the first one was really well received. Um, the second one, mostly well received and other people were like, but I want the numbers. So can I get the numbers now? Yeah, like, um, like me was, checking I, the weather before I leave the house. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then, yeah. then people are like, you are now our national COVID number service. So I demand numbers. And I was like, then you can go to the dashboard. Uh, yeah. yeah, I have an observation about this, which is that, um, I mean, you, you study organizational psychology, you look at one of the things you looked at is heuristics. Like, um, I, I, to the extent that I still have an academic uh, career, I, I, I'm a humanities person, right? And so I looked at the sort of metaphors uh, of, of uh, pandemic response. And I was very struck by things like roadmap, um, dashboard, 
right, which conceptualize uh, the disease and the pandemic as a sort of moving vehicle uh, that we can't stop, but that we can only adjust the speed for. And it occurs to me that the whole framing of this suggests that we can't even conceptualize, say, what happened uh, in uh, Vietnam or uh, uh, New Zealand, where they say, no, there is no dashboard because this isn't moving through our population. And it really seems like this framing simply made the discussion about how fast that vehicle should be going. Um, and I, it's not just the dashboard, but it's also, uh, you probably remember this, this uh, simulation that was uh, commissioned by the Dutch government from something called Gupta Strategists, where they actually uh, had a, a, like, they conceptualized the pandemic as a train, right? And they said, this is, uh, you know, based on the speed by which we mean how little public health measures you put in place, how quickly you'll arrive at your destination, right? Which seemed to really accept the logic of herd immunity to some degree, like, uh, you know, we have to get to this destination. Are we going to go fast or are we going to go slow? What do you think about this? Do you think if we had had a different metaphor, uh, a different uh, way of visualizing this, that we would have approached it differently? You're asking a numbers guy whether we should have used different metaphors. Um, so that's a that's a difficult question. What I what I well, if we didn't have a dashboard, if we said, you know what, we're not in a moving car. Actually, what we what we what we've realized is we need to stop the car. Uh, because, you know, when they did that in places that contained or at least aggressively mitigated like Germany, people went back to somewhat normal lives with relatively little risk. So this thing got us and myself included obsessed with daily numbers. Uh, how fast is it going? And I've got to do that all over again right now. I'm, I'm still a few days away from my second shot, which means I don't have my 90% Pfizer immunity for three more weeks, right? Uh, and so I've got to like look at the figures and say, well, is it safe for me to go to the doctor's office where nobody wears a mask? Is it safe for me to sit on the terrace with my friends who I haven't seen in a year? If we hadn't have looked at this as an, as an issue of like how fast we go, of uh, what the proper level of virus, uh, you know, floating around at any one time, if we had, if we had conceptualized it as like um, a car that wasn't moving, <laughs> would that have made a difference? I, maybe I'm not, I don't know. I can, yeah, maybe you don't have an answer for this. It's fine. Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm not sure if the metaphors, but, but yeah. many discussions I've had, and I think the, the two protests, they um, allow some view, um, especially the second one, because people were like, but I need the numbers. And my response to all those people has been, why do you need the numbers? Because one, does it make a difference on the policy level? No. Two, does it make a difference on uh, an individual level of how you should go about and how which type of behavior you should show at this moment in the pandemic? No. So the, the numbers have zero value um, no. in a way. People just want to know. Um, and as you mentioned, people get addicted. So people were really mad. The second time we had protests, they were like, but I have a right to know the numbers. And then I was like, well, I am, I, you did not pay me. So go to the freaking dashboard. I'm just making a, a policy statement here. Yeah. Um, and I've had the discussion with your PhD, people. by the way, you got other things. Yeah, to do. <laughs> I, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, but, but I've had the discussion with many people. I think numbers 
one are partial reflection of reality. They they yeah. only tell a very little part of the story, um, but they're very easy to look to, right? So it's really difficult for people to hear, hear real impact stories of people who've been hit by COVID, people who've been hit by the measures economically, for example. It's just easier to see, okay, there are 18 people that have died of COVID today. And then you then you go on with life. Um, but um, um, that that um, those items front berichten, so um, uh, stories from the front, right? We had in the first wave, for example. I think that that is much more impactful. Um, but yeah. yeah, by this point, I'm not that dude that publishes the numbers, so I'll keep on doing. Yeah, it. I, I mean the numbers are necessary, right? And especially when you can't often trust or depend on the numbers coming uh, from the state. Uh, it's just you know I, I looked. Uh, to, to use an example, uh, Ben Coates, who's a, a British expat here who com comments on Corona policy, you know, he was quite critical by, I think, his standards uh, during the pandemic. And then uh, he recently tweeted that uh, he was supportive of relaxing some of the measures because he said something like only five people a day are dying. And I thought, this, see, this is the trap. <laughs> this is the trap is that you have a number in your head that's like an acceptable number of dead. Uh, and it's it's worth noting that zero was the acceptable number uh, in many countries, um, and uh, we we kind of lost sight of that right away. Um, I think I think what what many people even forgot is that um, 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 within the realm of exponential growth, there is basically over time no difference between everything above one and infinity because it will grow. Um, same for below one, because then yes, it's decreasing, but at some point, if you don't do anything, it's, it's going up again. There is one number that actually is different and it is zero. Um, because in New Zealand, for example, for a long time, they had an R zero or an R effective of zero, um, which literally means there is no more cases. Um, so that is mathematically even a whole different universe. Um, and I think we've been very focused um, and I think that's where, for me, the roadmap and the dashboard and all the metaphors that are driving me crazy in the press conferences, um, it's it's an illusion of control in a way. Like if, um, and I think that was most clear um, in the start of the second wave when the government decided to close bars at 9 p.m. Um, because closing bars at 9 p.m. would help. Um, well, maybe. And then the next one um, that was the um, mid-October package was they actually said we're aiming for an R of 0 0.9. So the model said, if you do this, you'll get an R of 0 0.9. And then the cabinet was like, we'll do this because this is um, uh, not hurting the economy so much. Um, this was confirmed by the uh, uh, Minister De Jonge in the podcast that I have myself. Um, like we need to balance economy and healthcare. And so that one was going to control the pandemic, but not hurt the economy too much. Obviously, that was never going to work because everybody who understands exponential growth and how a virus works can tell you that you cannot take precise measures and then a model tells you the R will be 0 0.9 and then it's actually going to be 0 0.9 because you're dealing with a virus and human beings. Um, so that was some weird illusion of control um, that they had and then they had to learn again because there was the second wave already that viruses do not work like that. Um, and that has just surprised me. And that links back to your metaphor of the car, like we're driving, we have some control, we can increase the speed, decrease the speed. Um, you can't. Well, the other thing I wondered about, because I, I was also not a huge fan of the curfew, uh, which was like three months of uh, 
you know, uh, don't leave your house after, well, first it was 10 or nine and then it was 10. Um, and I wondered why we opted for curfew over a better mask policy. Like for instance, uh, as I'm sure you know, the masking policy uh, in the Netherlands, such as it is, we're getting rid of it mostly uh, on Sunday or Saturday, such as it is, it's, it, it, it doesn't really do much to, to stop aerosols because you can take off a mask once you uh, sit down at your job behind a desk or you know, uh, if you're the cashier somewhere, you just get behind a plexiglass plate. And it, it seems strange to me because I would guess that we could have had more um, people on the side of the uh, mitigation measures if we had not done something like curfew, but instead said, hey, everyone needs to wear an FFP2 every time they're indoors. Uh, it seems like that would have made a much bigger difference and wouldn't have turned people against, especially certain people against the pandemic in quite the same way. Wh why do you think they chose something that on the face of it was much more repressive than, uh, you know, than simply just wearing a mask or, you know. Um, I think again, because of, um, there's a form of linearity in the decision-making. Um, so um, I mentioned with other people, um, economists and others who work on decision-making and uncertainty, um, that if I am able to predict the policy decisions, then probably they are bad um, because then they are linear decisions. Um, and what you need in a pandemic is, is decisions that um, encapsulate complexity, the uncertainty, the exponential growth. So that's usually been my slogan. If I am able to predict it, it's probably bad. Um, as a person who studies decision-making and then I think, for example, such as masks is that type of asymmetric um, measure, right? So, so there are virtually no costs. Um, if masks do not work, the only cost is that we've been looking crazy for um, a year because we wore masks. Well, that is zero cost for me. Um, yeah. But the upside could be huge. Um, same goes for ventilation. Um, I've actually had this discussion with... Um, uh, the Department of Health in August, so with the Secretary General, um, when we had a conversation as the red team with Minister de Jonge and also the Secretary General, so that's the highest civil servant, he was like, what do you think of other measures? Um, and I was like, ventilation, it's important. And he was like, are you also one of those ventilation people? I was like, no, I'm not necessarily one of those ventilation people, but I'm going to explain to you why this is a smart decision. And I said, the, the air quality in my current office, you are invited to work in my office, but it's the worst. Um, I'm exaggerating, of course, to make a point. Yeah. Um, and um, um, improving the quality of ventilation and air quality in my office is going to be effective for, I mean, decades, um, for my productivity, for my well-being. I said, if then as an extra advantage, it also helps to control COVID, then it is a very um, effective measure. If it doesn't help to control COVID, at least my productivity and well-being for the upcoming decades will be better because the air quality in my office is better. So there is no reason to not do this now. Um, and this, this way of thinking about um, um, upsides, downsides, um, asymmetry asy uh, of, of um, yeah. uh, risks, et cetera, it's, that's not the way current, I think, um, a majority democratic decision-making um, tends to work um, because if you make a mistake, then there's huge political costs. Um, and I think New Zealand um, 
for example, um, Arden has been very clear. Like I have, a, I have one value that is driving my decision making, which is which is um, um, public health, um, and I will not accept deaths from this virus um, from the beginning. Then it's very clear where you're coming from. Um, it's also very hard to negotiate, and it worked out very well. Could have been very different, of course. Um, yeah. But she made the smart decision, and now she's um, that person that everybody wants to be their prime minister. But basically, it, it also seems the case that. Uh... We're, that the Netherlands policy, the policy that, that we're seeing, setting aside the, the sort of conspiracy assumption that actually everything is just designed to uh, promote herd immunity. Like let, let's assume there's a good faith effort to mitigate. Um, it seems like it's based on a set of scientific assumptions that uh, the rest of the international scientific, scientific community doesn't share, right? So for instance, RAVM has been quite insistent that uh, the virus spreads through fomites and through droplets, right? And it reluctantly changed some of the uh, information around aerosols. Um, and so that seems to be why we don't have a focus on masks and ventilation. Uh, also, of course, various members of the government have sort of made sort of racist remarks about masks, right? That they're worn in Asian countries and Asian countries aren't able to. So there do, there do seem to be a set of assumptions then that, that get baked into the policy there um, that, that all seem to come from von Dissel because uh, Rutte doesn't seem to have a lot of opinions about how diseases spread, uh, independent opinions, right? Um, I just want to ask you one more question uh, about, uh, so you, you've, because you have a podcast, uh, Signal Board, right? You, you've had an opportunity to talk to some of these people. Um, is there anything that uh, our English language listeners or international listeners should know about your interviews with de Jong and uh, Marian Koopmans and some of these people who to me feel like they're on another planet uh, and not anyone I can actually uh, ask a, a question to? Um, I think there's a there's a couple of things we have to um, discuss here. There, it's multi-layered. So, so there is, of course, the outbreak management team. We've had multiple members of them. So Mark yeah. Bonte, um, who is a microbiologist and an epidemiologist um, yeah. on the show. Uh, Marion Koopmans, our, our, I would say, main virologist currently in a pandemic um, yeah. two weeks ago. And then we had the, the uh, Minister de Jonge, so, so the one, I, basically the chief responder in this um, outbreak. Um, on the show and um, in connection to what you mentioned earlier about aerosols um, and masking um, is that the um, position of the RIVM um, and, and explicitly because we've had a meeting with, with Jaap van Dissel for example as the red team like back in August September um, has been um, if the science is clear um, then there will be implications for our advice right so the um, science on masks, um, of course, there is no way to do a randomized clinical trial where you take like two islands and then one you allow to wear masks, the other one you should show the exact same behavior, and then you drop a virus in and then you see what the, right? that will be the perfect evidence, but that's just not realistic. So you need to um, understand um, from um, indirect evidence whether they work. My conclusion and with the red team, and I think basically um, a lot of people and scientists all over the world is there is enough indirect evidence that masks have an effective, um, are an effective way um, to um, uh, control the spread of this virus. 
um, in certain situations. Um, but it hasn't been shown with randomized clinical trials. But the AVM is more, uh, I think, conservative institute in saying, like, if it hasn't been really clear from the evidence, then we also cannot say that people should do this. Okay, but I want to stop there for a second. As far as I know, and I'm a little bit of a nerd on this, but I'm also not a scientist, there has been no evidence of fomite transmission, and yet there's unceasing messaging around uh, wash your hands, which is always a good idea. I think the Dutch should wash, wash their hands as much as possible. Uh, you know, I, I, there's hand sanitizer whenever you walk in. So all the bars and nightclubs are going to reopen this weekend, and they're all going to be offering people hand sanitizer. But not a single person is going to know anything about aerosol transmission. And we have no evidence on fomites and very little evidence even of droplet transmission of this virus. In fact, it does seem like there has been a paradigm shift in our understanding of the way respiratory illnesses are spread, right? But this message is not coming from our health authorities. And were they even open to this possibility when you talk to Coltman's and, and, and Bonta, or, I mean, they, do they know that this is happening? That there's a whole discussion about. Uh... I mean, I'm I'm def I'm def I'm convinced they are aware of the discussion. Um, <laughs> right, because they, I mean, they must be around international colleagues who are like, oh yeah. And they're they're on, they're on Twitter. Um, yeah. Many of us are are sending things to them like, did you read this, etc. So yes, they are. And we didn't discuss transmission routes either with Coatmans or Bonte because yeah. they've been discussed so much that we. Okay. Uh, didn't want to do that with them, um, but we've mostly focused on the strategy. Um, um, like, what is the Dutch strategy, and is that an effective strategy? Um, and, but I just wanted to make that statement. Like, I think the AVM has been a very conservative. Like, if there is no explicit evidence, then it then it's then we cannot base our advice on that. Um, but but so, that's what I'm saying is, there's no explicit evidence for fomites or droplets. No, I think in the beginning, most of the well, evidence I'll, is for aerosol. <laughs> I, I'm 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 not an expert on transmission routes, so yeah. uh, I can't either support or debunk um, um, aerosol claims. Um, as far as my understanding goes, aerosols are an important transmission route. Whether they are yeah. the most important, um, whether fomites have a zero percent chance of transmitting. Um, usually I'm in the ballpark of let's assume they have some influence and any influence we can kill, um, let's do it. Like I said, um, keep washing your hands, but in uh, general, because, yeah. because Dutch people are bad hand washers um, before yes. the pandemic. So I, I hope that's one thing we can incorporate into the future. Keep on washing your hands, people. Um, but, um, so getting back to the point, um, uh, the problem was that politics also has a responsibility to say, so the advice is unclear or the science is unclear, we're still going to make a decision anyhow. Um, so politics, um, I mean, in Germany, they've been watching the same science and they, from the first wave onwards, were like, what, wear masks in um, elderly homes. Um, in Berlin, you will not get in anywhere without FP2, for okay. example. Um, by now, I think the evidence is pretty clear, but even back then, the Germans were like, the science is not super clear, but we're still going to do it because it just makes sense. Precautionary um, principle. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think in the beginning here, um, what Rutte has explicitly said is the, um, the advice from the outbreak management team is holy. That's, I mean, that's a literal translation. Um, and basically, by doing that, he put the scientists on the chairs of the decision makers. And that's a huge problem because then you're making scientists responsible for politics. Right. Um, so um, I think in that case, 
people become more careful and the politicians can hide behind the science, um, which is not what science is for. Um, politicians hiding behind um, um, evidence that is constantly being updated, um, which we've seen during this pandemic. So now to your question, I think with, with our discussions, um, in our discussions with scientists, um, what I've seen is that tendency, like looking at all the evidence um, being combined, I think this was the best. I think Mark Ponte was pretty clear. He was like, if I look at everything, I think mitigation is the best. Um, we've had the discussion. Our podcast is not a debate podcast. So we're more of a, we, need, we want to get the perspective of our guests um, to our listeners in the best way possible. I disagree with many of the guests on the podcast, but um, um, that's, that's no problem because I'm just interested in hearing people's views. And I think the listeners um, care too. Um, same with Marion Koopmans. Um, we've had that same discussion. Um, she pointed out interesting things like we need to get an OMT behavior. Um, so our outbreak management team is basically a biomedical advice team. Yeah. Um, the behavioral component has been lacking um, too much. Um, at some point, we got the behavioral unit at the RIVM, which um, drafts um, a beautiful advice um, that I, at some point during the podcast, mentioned we should replace the advice from the OMT with the advice from the behavioral unit. Okay. Um, and we'll be out of the pandemic in three months. <clears throat> um, of course, exaggerating a bit. Um, and then I even proposed that to Koopmans, like, I think we should do this. What do you think about that? Um, she disagreed, obviously. Yeah. Um, but at least it was a fun discussion. And then with the Jonge, I think that was interesting because um, science is science and you can debate science, um, but policy is about values um, and um, uh, smart decision-making. And, and with uh, the Jonge, um, I, so he's a politician, obviously, um, yeah. and he's he's um, very good at being a politician. Um, I think I'm I'm safe to say that. Um, so he was defending the strategy fiercely, um, and I think the most noteworthy moment um, was when we were discussing the second wave and the start. And he admitted we should have intervened earlier, which was interesting because the official cabinet policy has always been that they've intervened early enough, but they should have intervened stronger. Right. So we did something end of September, yeah. but we didn't do enough. And he actually said on the podcast, we should have do done uh, something earlier, which was totally new because they've been very um, consistent in saying we've, we've started um, early enough, we should have done more. Um, so that was weird. And then we continued on that line um, and he started on zero COVID himself. Um, I think there was strategy. Um, and then saying like, there's also people who are in favor of containment, zero COVID. Um, but I think that type of policy would have been all crushing on, on society and you would have left um, entrepreneurs out in the cold um, because you just closed down businesses. And then um, my response to that was, but what is the difference with the current strategy if that is your conclusion? Like if your conclusion is, um, containment leads to strong policy, closing down um, mobility, which includes closing shops, um, hurting entrepreneurs. Um, there is no difference with your current strategy because the bars have been freaking closed for six months and we've had 30,000 deaths. So, so how can you say that this strategy works? Because the only difference is that we have more debts now, but the bars have still been closed for six months. Um, he had a hard time formulating a response. Um, and I think at the end, he mentioned something like, um, yeah, but then they would have been closed longer, 
right? So so yes. now now at least they've had freedom for one month after the summer, and then we close them off anyhow. Um, I'm not sure that that's that's the most optimal response um, to my, of course, question that was trying to pressure him a bit. Um, this is why he's a politician. <laughs> I, yeah. So what can can their the, job is to be slippery. <laughs> what can the listeners learn? Yeah. Um, I I think after all this is done and over, and I'm not sure when that is, um, we'll get that parliamentary inquiry um, um, at some point. And I think we need to seriously revamp the way we um, manage pandemics um, and especially review the strategy. Um, as you mentioned, there's, of course, a lot of discussion about is herd immunity intentional? Um, is it about um, um, we're not right so the uk i'm not sure if you've seen those interviews with dominic uh, cummings yeah. um i mean that was mind-blowing but but there they had that explicit like we'll do like uh chicken pox parties and stuff um yeah. i'm not sure whether such conversations happened here as well but um in the end it, in the end the question is does it really matter because yeah. the policy has been it's about letting it go until hospital intakes are rising enough sure. and that in the end that leads to the same problem this is exactly what uh amrish Baju said when i asked him I, I said is it deliberate policy of herd immunity or is it in, you know some sort of incompetent mitigation and he says it can be both uh you know <laughs> and i think that's probably uh probably uh a realistic way to look at organizations and dysfunctional ones which is I, I know something that you uh, are, are interested in. Um, I, and we haven't even coordinated this response, Amri um, So okay, Yeah, well, no, uh, I mean, it's also what I have to observe. And I also think like you could spin that the other way too, which is while the UK explicitly backed away from herd immunity, well, while the Netherlands leaned into it, the results were very much the same because that thinking was still there. So the UK did very, like, basically operationalized the logic of herd immunity in a lot of ways, uh, but uh, left a lot of room for complaint. Whereas, unfortunately, I think in the in the Netherlands, um, public response has been pretty muted uh, to the herd immunity, uh, uh, yeah, plan or strategy, if it was one. I want to ask you one final question. Uh, I know that you're almost done with your PhD, and uh, it looks like we even in the best case are going to have uh, uh, yeah uh, an uncertain outlook for the fall and the winter are you going to be our numbers guy uh, in the fall and winter uh, you uh, continue doing this I mean it's um, um, people think it's a lot of work but by now it's so scripted that it's actually five seconds of work if it's functional um, so if there's a storing or something else then then it's actually work so yeah I'm going to keep on so what I'm intending to do is at least keep on doing the numbers until everybody who wants to is fully vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, so that's August, September. Um, and by then I'll look at the numbers. If it's rising again, I'll keep on doing it. Um, if the pandemic is over, which is extremely unlikely, um, then I'll stop publishing the numbers. But um, yeah, that's that's a decision I'm postponing until um, everybody's fully vaccinated. By then I'll review whether people should go to the dashboard instead of my um, Twitter account. Yeah. Marino, thank you very much uh, for talking with me today. And thank you for all of your work with the Red Team. Thank you for having me over. That concludes my conversation with Marino von Zelst, which was recorded on June 24th of 2021.
I want to thank Marino uh, for joining me again today, and I want to thank uh, you for listening to this podcast. Uh, if you'd like to uh, follow Marino, uh, if you're not already doing so, he's on Twitter at uh, mzelst, M-Z-E-L-S-T. Uh, and if you'd like to follow the Red Team, they are at C19 Red Team on Twitter, at C19 Red Team. Until next time, this is Matt Cornell, and you've been listening to Breaking the Waves.